take your copy of the scriptures, find John 18. We've read the passage together. We're going to reference it regularly this morning. There are uh, notes. There's an outline in the bulletin where you can track along. In our study of the gospel of John that has taken many months, we've really come to the end of the end. And I don't mean the end of John's gospel. I just mean the end of the story of John's gospel. We've come all the way through the farewell discourse, which is several chapters, John 13 up through 17. Last week, Corey did a great job walking us through the events in the garden, the second garden, where Jesus was betrayed and arrested, and this morning we're considering Jesus on trial. It's a good place to just point out uh, a statistic. I have an accounting degree, so when I can share numbers with you. I like to use uh, the degree that I got in accounting. The Gospel of John contains 21 chapters. I know that John didn't write in chapters. I know that those came later, but there's 21 chapters. The final nine, 43%, detail the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. It's interesting that he devotes so much space in this Gospel to one 24-hour period. He covers a lot of ground in the opening chapters, but then he just screeches to a halt and he's focusing on this last 24-hour period where Jesus was alive on the earth. And it's a literary technique that John uses to say, you need to pay attention to this. All of it's important, but you really gotta pay attention to this because this is what it was all leading up to and what it was all building up to. And he doesn't just want us to know that Jesus died. He wants us to know who Jesus was and why it's significant that he died. That's what we're talking about this morning. There is a colorful cast of characters in this passage. We could chase a lot of different rabbits. We're going to try not to do that, but you need to understand, we need to understand who all of these people are if we're going to understand what John is telling us about Jesus. So we'll start with Annas. Annas was the Jewish high priest from AD 6 to 15. Five of his sons later served as high priest. And then in addition to five sons, his son-in-law Caiaphas also served as high priest. High priest was sort of like president. You get the title once and you keep it for life even when you're not in office. You may think this sounds like a pious religious family, a bunch of priests. When you think about Annas and his family, just think about a mafia family, okay? That's what these guys were like in the worst sense of the, of the, the term. They bought their way into power, and every now and then the Romans would sort of flex and say, you're out and you need to put someone else in, but it was always this same family, Right? They were always greasing palms. They were always getting the next son or the next son-in-law in. And here in John 18, Annas is still the patriarch of this high priestly family, but it's now his son-in-law Caiaphas who is ruling. So they're both referred to as high priest, and you kind of have to sort out which one Jesus is talking to or which one John is talking about. Caiaphas had the title. Annas had the real power. And when you think about this family... Just keep in the back of your mind, this was the family that was in charge of the money exchanging in the temple. This is the family that was in charge of the animals being sold in the temple. 
Jesus had come in for the second time and flipped their tables over and ran everyone out, they were not about to let a carpenter from Nazareth mess up their high priestly empire. That's Annas and Caiaphas. Next, Pilate. Pilate ruled over the province of Judea from A.D. 26 to 37. He was hated by the Jewish people and the Jewish authorities. Judea was a problematic province in the Roman Empire because they were always trying to revolt. They really weren't powerful enough to do it, but they were always planning and scheming and trying to revolt. Rome didn't like that. And so when Pilate came into office as governor of this province, he had a very clear plan. I'm going to put my thumb on these people so hard, I'm going to oppress them so violently that they won't even think about revolt. So for example, when the Jewish leaders came to Pilate and they said, Mr. Pilate, We don't like those Roman images, those Roman idols being displayed in the temple precincts. Pilate said, well, let's get together and have a meeting about that. They thought, well, that's very kind of him. Showed up to the meeting. Pilate turned his soldiers loose and slaughtered everyone there. Don't even think about revolting. There came a day when Pilate needed to build a new aqueduct to provide water for the city. Rather than ask Rome for help, rather than just tax the people, he went straight to the temple. He said, open up the treasury. You're paying for it. They said, but this is temple money. It's not Roman money. It's not aqueduct money. It's temple money. And he said, hand it over. He took the money and he built his aqueduct. The Jewish people did not like Pilate. When you read about these Jewish leaders going to Pilate and acting very civil to him, you understand that they're biting their tongue. They're dealing with an enemy, Pilate, to take care of a mutual enemy, Jesus. Third, Barabbas. Literally, his name means son of the father or son of a father. There's some historical evidence, pretty strong historical evidence, to suggest that his first name was Jesus. It's a very, very common Jewish name in the first century. There's other historians who say his name was Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. Uh, John, excuse me, John describes him here as a robber. He'd been involved in an insurrection. Most likely, he was part of the zealot political party, always planning some sort of revolt against the Romans. In Roman eyes... Barabbas was a terrorist, right? We know what a terrorist is as Americans. Lots of images flood your mind. That's how the Romans saw Barabbas. The Jews saw him as a dangerous man, but as some sort of guerrilla fighter, some sort of freedom fighter, some sort of patriot, some sort of nationalists. That's Barabbas. In the midst of all those characters, and we could add Peter to the mix, but I think you're familiar with Peter, There's a carpenter from Nazareth, and all the action swirls around him. John has told us from the very beginning, this is the word of God made flesh. It's the light of the world come into the darkness of the world. And in the middle of all this chaos, there's Jesus. And all that we read earlier, everything in John 18, 12 to 40, for all these characters involved, It's really all about Jesus. And John is trying to make one simple point. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. 
Those two words go together, right? Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is a Greek word. Both of them literally mean the anointed one. And what John is trying to show you in this passage, with all these knuckleheads swirling around Jesus, John is trying to show you Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. You'll find that title in the Old Testament a few times. But over time, that title in particular just became a catch-all for all of the hopes and all of the promises and all of the expectation and all of the anticipation that someday God would send someone to fix everything that had gone wrong. That's who the Jewish people were looking for, just a big catch-all title for the one that God had promised to send, the anointed one, the Messiah the Christ. This is a really remarkable passage. Like I said earlier, there's value in taking it all together. My first thought when I read it this week was, there's a bunch of dopey people mistreating Jesus in this passage. And I just couldn't get past it. I couldn't get past all the characters involved. But then the more I started thinking about it, I thought, it's not about any of these peripheral characters. Jesus is at the center of it, and it's really all about Jesus. Who is he as the Messiah? And so that's all that we're going to talk about this morning. If you were hoping, because it's time change Sunday, that I'd give you a funny story, something you could laugh about, slap your knee about, something just mind-blowingly interesting, I don't have any of that. So pinch your neighbor, keep them awake. We're just going to talk about who Jesus is, because that's what John is telling us in this passage. What does John want us to know about Jesus the Messiah? Truth number one, Jesus is the true high priest. He's the true high priest. The role of the high priest in Israel is very simple. The high priest's job was to talk to God, to the Lord, on behalf of Israel. On behalf of the people. That's the job of the high priest. He talks to God for the people. He represents the people to God. He represented them not just by speaking to God, but by offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. Daily sacrifices, burn offerings, sin offerings, Passover sacrifices, the Day of Atonement sacrifice. That was the job of the high priest. He represents the people before God. He speaks to God on behalf of the people. Does that sound like what Annas and Caiaphas are doing in this passage? Not at all. John wants you to understand that they're phonies, they're frauds, they're fakes. Look what Caiaphas had said. This is a callback to John 11. It's in verse 14. It was Caiaphas, the acting high priest, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Back in John 11, months earlier, they had this big meeting and they said, look, we got to kill this guy. If we don't do something about this guy, all the people are going to riot. Rome's going to come in here and kick us out because we couldn't keep everything under control. We've got to deal with him. And Caiaphas, the acting high priest, spoke and he raised his hand. He said, fellas, fellas, do you not understand? We could kill one guy, Jesus, and it would solve all of our problems. 
And then the rest of the nation doesn't have to worry about Rome coming in here and cracking skulls. They took his advice. And from that moment, John 11, they said, we're going to kill him. The Jewish leaders had resolved that Jesus had to die. We'll see in a few weeks that this plan to kill one man actually expands. But for now, they're saying we've got to kill one man so that the nation might live. Rather than talking to God on behalf of sinners, the acting high priest is playing political games and planning murder. What about Annas? You read about Annas in verse 19 to 24. Look what he, John tells us in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. You understand these aren't real questions. These aren't questions where Annas is trying to get to the root of the matter. He's trying to understand. He's open to believing that maybe God's fulfilling prophecy and promise. He's not interested in any of that. He's playing theological gotcha, right? Doctrinal back you in a corner and see if I can get you to say something incriminating. It's entirely beneath the dignity of the high priest. And John's just laying all of this out for your consideration. John 17, the high priestly prayer. That's not... John's description of it, but it's what theologians call it. The high priestly prayer, John 17. What's Jesus doing in John 17? He's talking to God on behalf of his people. You read John 17 and you say, well, that's what the high priest ought to do. Talk to God on behalf of sinful people. Jesus is doing that. You come to John 18 and you say, well, what's the de facto high priest and the acting high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, what are they doing? They're planning a murder. And John lays it out for you to understand beyond shadow of a doubt. Annas is not the real high priest. Caiaphas might have the title. He's not the real high priest. Jesus is the true high priest. He's the one who has come to talk to God, the Father, on behalf of his people. And he's come to offer a sacrifice. This is the second truth. Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice. In some sense, this sets him apart from the other high priests in Israel. They offered bulls and goats and lambs. Jesus isn't going to offer bulls and goats and lambs. He's going to offer himself. Verse 14, Caiaphas advised the Jews it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. You go back and look at that in John 11 when he said it the first time. John gives you a little explanatory note, and he says, by the way, when Caiaphas said that, he accidentally spoke a prophecy. It's kind of John's way of saying a broken clock is right twice a day. Caiaphas, he wasn't right about much. But when he said this, he didn't know how right he was. It was, in fact, the plan that one man would die for the people. And when you read that in John 11 and you read it in John 18, your mind says, wait a minute. I've heard something like that way back in John chapter 1. John the Baptist said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't come to offer lambs. He was the Lamb. He didn't come to offer the blood of bulls and goats on the Day of Atonement. He came to offer his self as a substitutionary sacrifice. Look down, if you will, at verse 31 and 32. 
This is Pilate and the Jews. The Jews say, look, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We need you to do it. You understand that if the Jews would have put Jesus to death, they would have likely stoned him. That's what they did to Stephen in Acts 7. That was the prescribed method of execution in the Old Testament law, stoning. They want Pilate to do it, and they know if Pilate does it, he's going to crucify him. Romans weren't going to stone him. They were going to crucify him. And John includes this detail to say, even the fact that they go to Pilate and they ask Pilate to put Jesus to death, which implies crucifixion, is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a fulfillment of what Jesus himself said. If you look back in John chapter 3, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In John 12, verse 32, he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. John's telling you right here in John 18, the very fact that they go to Pilate and ask Jesus to be executed implies a crucifixion. It's a fulfillment of Jesus' own prophecy, his own prediction about how he would die. He would be lifted up. He's talking about the cross. We understand that it's on the cross where Jesus offers himself as a substitutionary sacrifice. And you say, what does that mean? I'm having trouble getting my arms wrapped around it. Well, there's a picture of it right here in this passage. And the picture is Barabbas. Barabbas is a condemned man. He's a dead man walking. He's on death row waiting for his day. And there's this custom Every Passover where Pilate will, in trying to engender favor, release a prisoner. And he sets the choice before them and he says, you can have Jesus, the air quotes king in Pilate's mind, or you can have a violent, thieving insurrectionist. They choose Barabbas. And John describes that not just as an add-on detail. He's explaining to you what it means that Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice. The true Son of God will die on the cross so that a convicted criminal can go free and be a son of the Father, Barabbas. That's what substitution looks like. It looks like Jesus taking your place. That's what happened on the cross. The great high priest offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. Thirdly, what does John want us to know about Jesus the Messiah? He wants us to know that Jesus is the true prophet. He's the true prophet. I told you the job of the high priest was to talk to God on behalf of the people. Flip that around if you want to think about the job of the prophet. The prophet in Israel talked to the people on behalf of God. You see the difference? High priest, I'm going to represent the people. I'm going to go talk to God on their behalf. The prophet does the opposite. Listens to God, then he goes to the people and he speaks for God to the people. John wants you to see that Jesus is the true prophet. Verse 19 to 24, Jesus is before Annas. Annas has all of these questions about his disciples and his teaching. It's the job of a prophet. It's to teach. Annas wants to question Jesus. And Jesus really doesn't have much to say to him. I said it openly. I said it repeatedly. I said it in your synagogues. I said it in the temple. Ask the people who heard me. So he sends him to Pilate. Verse 37 and verse 38. Pilate understands that Jesus is innocent. He's trying to protect a riot. And they get into this conversation about 
truth. About truth. You've read the previous chapters. So you remember that it was just a few hours earlier, John 14, when Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, Fellas, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In claiming to be the truth from God, he's claiming to be the fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 15. Moses said this to the people in Deuteronomy 18. We'll we'll throw it up on the screen. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it's to him that you will listen. There would be a greater prophet, another prophet, one after Moses. Listen to him. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, that's me, I'm him. And he doesn't just make that claim to his disciples, he makes that claim to Pilate. Verse 37, Jesus said, you said that I'm a king, we'll circle back to that, but for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. We'll just hit time out right there and think about the day and the place where we live. We live in the West, 2021. We live in a time and a place and a culture that has no concept of truth, period. We live amongst people who deny that there is even such a thing as truth. It makes for interesting times, right? I mean, it's hard to keep up with what's popular today or allowed today or not allowed today or unpopular tomorrow. You feel like you're swimming around just because there's no truth, right? The brightest minds and the greatest thinkers of our day tell us there is no absolute truth. It doesn't exist. The postmodern philosophers and the critical theorists, they look us in the eyeball and they say, truth? Truth is a tool that powerful people use to oppress weak people. That's all it is. It's a game. People in power use, air quotes, truth, to hold other people down and to oppress them. Everyone in life, everyone from Disney to Instagram to as recently as this week, Oprah Winfrey says to you, you need to find your truth, discover your truth, embrace your truth, and live your truth, whatever that might be. They don't give you any standard for that. They just send you on this journey to discover it for yourself and then embrace it and live it out. And then they say to all the rest of us, you have to not only accept it, but applaud it. Do you understand how revolutionary Jesus is? Do you understand how much trouble this is going to get you in if you believe it in 2021? Jesus said, I came into this world to bear witness to the truth. He's making at least two revolutionary claims. One, he's saying there is truth. Quit the games and acknowledge that there is truth. Secondly, it's to be found in him in him alone. He's the final standard. He's the way, the truth, 
in the life. He came to bear witness to the truth, and he says very plainly, if anyone listens to my voice, they're of the truth. My implication, if you don't listen to his voice, you're not of the truth. And that will make you very unpopular in 2021. You have a choice. You have a choice. You can side with the brilliant minds and the mob on social media and what you're told by the entertainment industry, and you can say, okay, there is no truth. You can play the game that Pilate played in verse 38 when he says, what is truth? You can be cute with your words, or you can cross the line and you can side with Jesus and you can say, no, there is truth. And it's objective and it's unchanging and it's eternal and it's outside of us and we don't get to vote on it. It simply is. That's the choice. Pilate had to make that choice. The Jewish leaders had to make that choice. Regardless of what anyone in 2021 says, you have to make that choice. Where will I turn to find truth? He's the true prophet. Fourthly, Jesus is the true king. He's the true king. I want you to look at this discussion between Jesus and Pilate, verse 33 to 37. You understand, Pilate could not care less about the charges of blasphemy. He doesn't care about that. He's not interested in that. The other gospel writers tell us that they accused Jesus of he was going to tear down the temple. Pilate doesn't care about these Jewish debates and squabbles. He doesn't care. Pilate cares about his job, cares about Pilate. And to care about Pilate and Pilate's job, he's got to care about Caesar and Caesar's job. And Caesar's the king. And so he cares about rival kings. And so as Pilate is talking to Jesus, all he wants to know is, Jesus, are you a king, yes or no? And it's a loaded question. Jesus knows that if he just comes out and says yes, then he's sort of put on the record as trying to one-up Caesar in some sort of earthly competition of kingdoms. And so Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, look, I have a kingdom, it's just not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then we would have been fighting by now. But we're not fighting by now because my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate just wants an answer. Verse 37, there's all this back and forth. Pilate says, so you are a king, yes or no? And Jesus uses a sort of a Hebrew idiom, a Hebrew way of saying you got that right. You better believe it. You said it. You said that I'm a king. Yes, I'm a king. He claims to be a king. The crowds just a few days earlier had said it as he entered Jerusalem. You read it in John 12. They took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him. They were crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Pilate himself, really trying to jab the Jews one last time in the whole process, will hang a sign above Jesus' head that actually says something true. He's the king of the Jews. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic for the world to read. There it was. He's the king of the Jews. 
And the Bible makes it very clear that in the end, every knee will bow before Jesus and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. He is the king of kings. John doesn't want you to figure that out on the last day. He wants you to figure it out now. And he's telling you this story so that you understand, yes, he is the true king. One last truth. He's the great I am. He's the great I am. I want you to think about the parts of this passage that involve Peter. It's broken up into two sections. It's not all placed in one lump, but it's, it's split up. Peter denying Jesus. John's writing is brilliant here. Corey did such a great job last week walking us through the garden and Jesus' declaration in the garden. And if you don't understand what happened at the first part of John 18 with Jesus in the garden, you can't understand what's happening with Peter here. Peter is on trial just like Jesus is on trial. Both of these men are on trial. Jesus is on trial before the Roman governor and the official high priest and the real acting high priest. Peter's on trial before a servant girl who opens and closes the door for the high priest at his house. Jesus is on trial, and in the first part of John 18, Jesus looks at his opponents, and twice he says, I am. I am. He says it back in John 18, verse 5. They answered him, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Literally, as Corey pointed out last week, I am. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. John tells you twice that he's the I am. What does he tell you about Peter here? I know he denies him three times, but twice he gives Peter's words, and his words are, I am not. I am not. It's a brilliant literary technique comparing and contrasting these two men, both on trial. Jesus the I am, Peter the not. He wants you to see the truth about Jesus. This really isn't about Peter. I read multiple commentaries this week that tried to give Peter a golf clap. Not a full-on standing ovation, but a golf clap. Right? Nice job for at least following this far. Everyone else has ran for the hills. Peter at least made it this far, and there's a little bit of applause for Peter. But I think when you read it in context, John intends no applause for Peter. There is a sense in which Peter is still sort of trailing along, but what Peter's trying to do is set the terms of discipleship. I'll follow Jesus up to a point, and as long as I can control what it looks like to follow Jesus. And in this moment, what it looks like for Peter to follow Jesus is to say, I'm not one of his disciples. I'm not one of the men who follow Jesus. He's trying to set the terms of discipleship, and Jesus is the only one that gets to do that. No applause for Peter. Only a recognition that Jesus is the I am. What do we do with all of that? All of these truths about Jesus. I'm going to tell you my first impulse this week was two thoughts. One, 
was to feel sorry for Jesus, and then secondly, to say, I need to be more brave and courageous for Jesus. But John didn't write this story to elicit pity, and he did not write this story to elicit bravery. That was my first impulse. Man, I feel sorry for Jesus. All these guys are really bad dudes, and they're mistreating him. I feel sorry for Jesus. Never does the Bible ask you to feel sorry for Jesus. Never. He's in complete control of everything that is happening. His own words are being fulfilled in real time. He's not asking for pity. And it's not even an encouragement for you and I to be more brave and more bold and stand up and stand out for Jesus. This story's not about Peter. This story's about Jesus. The gospel message The summary of this book is first and foremost not about you and me or Peter or any of the other disciples. It's about God and who he is and what he's done to save us as sinners. If there's anyone in the passage that you want to identify with, in any way you want to identify with someone in this passage, what you ought to say is, you know, I'm a lot like Annas and Caiaphas. They had this little earthly kingdom they had set up and they were clinging to it tightly and they didn't want anyone to threaten it. That's a lot like me. I may not be the high priest of Israel, but I've got my own little thing and I'm prone to cling to it really tightly. You know, if I'm like anyone in this passage, I'm like Pilate. When it comes down and I'm uncomfortable and my life and livelihood and jobs on the line, I might want to play fast and loose with the truth and say, well, you know, really, what, what, what is truth? If I'm like anybody in this passage, maybe I'm like Peter, just flat out denying with my words or my actions, that I'm a disciple of Jesus. If you want to identify with anyone in this passage, why don't we all pick Barabbas and say we're all condemned before God Almighty. We're all dead men and women walking, deserving of damnation. This is not written to make you feel sorry for Jesus. And it's not really even written to make you bold and courageous for Jesus. John wrote this story to elicit faith. Faith. That's the point of the whole gospel. We've seen it week in and week out. John says, I have written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. The big takeaway for all of us this morning is to walk away from this passage, all of the chaos, all of the knuckleheads, all of the scoundrels, all of the injustice, and not to focus on any of that mess, but to focus on Jesus and to believe, to believe. He's the true high priest. He's the one who offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. He's the one as the true prophet who defines what is true and what is not true. He's the king of kings. He's the great I am. Believe. And in believing, you have life in his name.